Hello, and welcome to a very special spooky Halloween edition of the Screen Test of Time. I'm your host, Susan Raslin. I am your other host, David Daw, who could not think of a spooky Halloween pun name in time. I really, you should have given me more warning that we were going to do a spooktacular with the opening. (laughs) If you think of one later, we can always cut it back in. Can we? Okay, but only if you promise that if I think of it, it'll be like, also Frankenstein. Like, don't even try and match the audio up, but also (laughs) don't tell anybody that you edited it. (laughs) I mean, my Halloween spooky name is always boozin grasslin that's pretty that's pretty good i mean i think it's pretty terrible but thank you (laughs) right i mean it's pretty good for what you're trying to do there is what i mean yes that's fair right for those who are just tuning in for the first time or who need a refresher (laughs) i'm so sorry This is the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to eventually the present year, except for this week, because the movie that we would have watched is The White Parade, which has no extant copies outside of the super secret UCLA film archives, so we can't watch it. We can tell you that it is a movie about nurses based on the life of Florence Nightingale, and it is not a movie about a parade of ghosts. So instead, we decided to watch a spooky movie that also came out in 1934 and that people still talk about today. Yeah, Death Takes a Holiday. Oh, I thought I thought we were going to do The Black Cat. I you you didn't think that, but you did watch The Black Cat. If you would like to tell the people about the the, the listeners at home about the extra punishment you put yourself through this week <laughs> for no reason. You know, I I would like to talk about it for a moment because the whole reason that I ended up watching it was because the trailer for it says that it will make you forget that you saw Frankenstein. And if what they're saying is that I will lose all of the goodwill I have for Boris Karloff, who is in both, they were right. It's not great. It's a total mess. And anyone who made that trailer and genuinely thought that did not realize what was good about Frankenstein was not just that it was a horror movie, in so much as it even is one. But it does also star Bella Lugosi, and there is a scene where a man gets skinned alive, so like, if that's your jam, you can watch it. That is not my jam, so instead let us talk about this other film that I wish I kind of hadn't seen. See- because I watched Black Cat first, I think I actually really enjoyed Death Takes a Holiday by comparison. <laughs> I this is I think there's this thing where when a movie or just like a concept gets remade over and over again, mm-hmm. I think there's sort of two reasons why that happens. And the one everybody thinks about is just like, oh, it's a fucking gold mine. Like we could just make Transformers movies fucking forever. They're just car robots. Kids love it. And then the other way that something gets remade over and over again is, why can't we make a good fucking movie out of this killer goddamn idea? Like, why, why, no matter how many times we try, are we never successful? 
with this thing. And I feel like that's Death Takes a Holiday way more than that. Even though apparently it was critically successful, it just feels like such a missed opportunity and that they dropped the ball so much in this film. It was, however, a box office disappointment, despite being critically successful. So the premise of it, in case you've never seen Meet Joe Black... Which we're also going to get into that for like 15 minutes, but yes. (laughs) Yes. Is that Death decides to take on human form for a few days so he knows what it's like to be human and ends up hanging out with a bunch of rich people and then falls in love with one of them and... Then at the end, it's like, oh, but if you go with him, then you'll be dead. And she's like, oh, but I love him. And so huge spoiler, she dies and goes and lives with death. The end. I guess lives, but post lives. (laughs) Right. It's really unclear because death is not unable Not even unwilling, just super duper vague about what happens when you die, but also just a petulant shit that anyone would ever fucking ask constantly. Like, oh, why are you so afraid of death? I don't know, because it seems like a terrifying into- Well, it's not. Fuck you. (laughs) What- what is it? I- I- the veil beyond all- goodbye. What- (laughs) Uh, essentially, yeah. (laughs) So, Death Takes a Holiday from 1934 stars Frederick March, who now has been rewritten into starring in the second most number of 1934 movies that are considered for Best Picture, because we put it here. Frederick March stars as Death, who then pretends to be or takes on the form of Prince Sirki, who is like vaguely eastern european in a way that is that is so dracula-esque that it can't be an accident it's so whatever it is that i genuinely thought to myself why did the marx brothers never make a parody of this (laughs) i (laughs) yeah oh it would see you know that that would have been a really good version of this conceit Mm -hmm. yeah i uh I feel like there's so much specific detail. Like, I really, I I would blame Frederick March if I hadn't already seen him in a bunch of other stuff, because his performance in this, I don't think is any damn good. But I also don't think it's his fault. I think the script just turns death into this fucking nonsense part where all you can do is stand there and make every line this portentous bullshit fest where like... (laughs) You insist 80 times to your, like, host, no one can ever know I'm death. And then you introduce yourself to everyone like, hmm, I look forward to meeting you on the day that you die, when you drown in a lake. And it's like, what? fucking play along with the bit for five seconds, dude. Well, and he also says that if any of the Dukes guessed, act afraid of him at all that they will be subject to like horrible retribution and it's like yeah but dude you're creepy af (laughs) yeah doesn't he barely pretends to be human repeatedly fucks up and goes like oh yes i'm death i mean (laughs) no i'm not i'm a prince and like is then still a real asshole about it when the host is like 
Yeah, he's death, and he's definitely trying to kill your daughter. Is like, oh, I see you've taken back our bargain. And it's like, dude, you fucked it up like 80 <laughs> times. What are you fucking talking about? How is it even a bargain? Right? To go back a little bit and get into the details of the plot here. There's this duke who is played by Guy Standing, who is having one of those rich people parties that apparently don't happen anymore or like at least i'm not invited to them where they invite a whole bunch of people to stay at their house for like a week yeah (laughs) and his daughter is there no sorry his son his son is there and his son corrado is in love with this girl grazia who is like the gothest of all goths And then there's, like, some other random people, including the Princess Maria and Baron Chisaria. And they all go and hang out in the most ridiculous villa I have ever seen. The sets are amazing. Yeah. The sets are just so good. This movie is so shallow in the way that it deals with this particular story. And it's only 79 minutes long, so, like, of course it is. And it still wastes 30 minutes somehow. But it is gorgeous to look at all of the people in it are totally beautiful the costumes are absolutely incredible the villa is i mean the villa looks like the roman stuff from cleopatra except it's supposed to be one dude's house yeah it's really really amazing but on the way to the villa they get into a car accident where they almost kill a flower seller and multiple people almost die but everyone's okay but everyone's a bit shaken up except for grazia who is like weirdly sort of turned on by this i yes and i have i have several things about this sequence one is like grazia is just like such a weird slight character that the end of the movie is just like what what why what But also, I was under the impression that the reason nobody died is because death, like, let them live. Because he has a crush on Grazia? Or, like, what? what's the deal? Well, because because I thought the deal was going to be that, like, that's his leverage with the Duke. You have to do this thing, or that man you hit today will die. Because he's he should die. The only reason he's not dead is I didn't take him because I want to go on this holiday. So, like, now you're in on this with me. But no, he just tells him what's going to happen. And the Duke's like, well, uh, all right. It turns out that sequence exists for no fucking reason. Except for the terrible shadow special effect that's supposed to be death. And to establish that they've had a brush with death. Quite literally. (laughs) Right, but they then reestablish that with Gracia going out into the garden And having the literal brush with death. Yes. And so it's redundant. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. And confusing. I don't know that it's pointless, because what it definitely establishes is that everybody is like a little shaken up and a little on edge and feels like that they just missed their meeting with death. Just missed, but now going to experience it. And it establishes that Grazia is, like, the gothest goth ever. She's like Lydia Dietz, but somehow worse, because Lydia Dietz at least has, like, personality traits other than death is cool. (laughs) 
Yeah, Corrado gets, like, the worst shake of any Baxter in film history in this movie. Like... Yeah, that's true. I would literally rather die than stay in a relationship with you is the worst. But, but, I, but I do love you oh so much. I can never express how much I genuinely do love you. I would just rather go with death into just nothingness. He will promise me nothing. Then stay here with you, literal royalty, who would like to marry me. Yeah, that's that's true. Wow. Total Baxter. Agrati <laughs> <laughs> is played by Evelyn Venable, who, fun fact, was the original model for the personification of Columbia in the Columbia Pictures logo, and was the voice and model for the Blue Fairy in the Disney Pinocchio. And is incredibly beautiful yes and i was going to say against all odds has only the second most ridiculous name in this movie with guy standing as the third lead yeah that's true guy standing is like (laughs) that's almost a sentence yeah anyway so so yeah they have this brush with death grazia goes out into the garden to i don't know meditate on death and she always talks about like Oh, didn't it just feel as if there were ravens or black wings or whatever that were brushing by us? And then she screams when she's out in the garden and Death actually does go by her. Then Death comes and talks to Duke Lambert in what is a really impressive scene in one respect, which is that they cloak him basically in like black mesh so that the way that it's shot and with the lighting, he looks like a shadow. It's really quite impressive to watch, but it's like a 10 minute scene where Frederick March is explaining the concept of death being like personified as if this is a thing that human beings have not thought about for millennia. (laughs) The Duke also goes, well, what do you mean? Three times in the scene. Like literally that exact line. This is also where the movie like kind of starts to fall apart for me. Because up until then, just like one, I was saying that this movie should have been called A Curious Shadow if you wanted to have a worse title and didn't want to name it Meet Joe Black. Because people go, there was the most curious shadow like 37 times in the first 20 minutes of this movie. And everybody talks not like Grazia the most, but like everyone does these big portentous speeches about like the nature of death in this way that it's like, oh, it's going to be one of those bummer vacation weekends, huh? (laughs) But you're, I'm kind of like, I'm getting into the, the tone of it. Everybody's Lydia Dietz. It's fine. But then this scene where they lay out the not even really a deal with death, really just a death dictating what's going to happen for a really long time scene, which is then followed by this scene that is, uh, it's like where if I was reading the script for this, I'd be like, we just need a page one rewrite. We're like not thinking through this concept correctly. Because like you say, we've spent all this time on everybody being shaken up and everyone being freaked out by their brush with death. And then they actually literally meet death in his guise as the prince And everyone, despite the fact that Death's introduction to literally everyone is, I cannot believe that I have not killed you yet as Death, (laughs) I mean the Prince. (laughs) 
They're all so fucking into him instantly. Like every woman wants to fuck him. Every dude's like, this man's a charmer and he just has a, he has a way about him. And like, it's why? One, if you want to do that, why did you spend all this time having everybody be like shaken up and terrified? And two, why is that how you want to play it? Or if you're going to play it that way, at least make it so that like there's a rationale behind that. It seems like every woman wants to sleep with death in this movie just because they're gold diggers, because there's nothing compelling about him as a as a person whatsoever at any point in the entire film. I don't know that I got the gold digger vibe so much as I got, and I'm not sure that this is better. Hey, here's a dude we've never seen before. <laughs> Let's all throw ourselves at him. Literally, they say, like, that, I guess it's war then. Like, they're fighting over him, having these, like, huge, like, who's going to get with the prince battles over, like, trying to seduce him. For why? Like, he's never charming. He's just creepy. Literally, the most charming thing he does is not understand money. <laughs> That's the only even vaguely appealing thing he does in the entire movie. And uh, what's also frustrating is that because they use these really very elegant, very beautiful theatrical tricks in it, we know that the filmmakers have the capability, if they wanted to, of, like, doing something with the film to make it like oh he's just hypnotic even though everything that he says is is creepy nonsense and they don't do it no every human being in this movie seems like the stupidest motherfucker that could possibly exist because like th there's also this thing where because he's on vacation literally no one on earth can die and yet for three days, nobody puts it together. They're like, ah, oh, it's so weird that just like literally no one on the planet Earth has died in two days. Hmm. I wonder what like, hmm, buh. It's so weird how all the orphans got out of that burning orphanage right after no one died in the massive 100,000 person battle. And then everyone got saved from that sinking ship. I can't put two and two together on this at all. What's going on? Like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and it all starts when they're at breakfast with the prince, and someone is reading the paper and says, like, oh, this guy jumped off of the top of the Eiffel Tower and survived. And Frederick March is like, oh, the poor man. And everyone looks at him like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, the guy survived. And he's like, I wish I could do something to help him. Like, write a letter to him with my condolences. And I kept waiting for him to do the, like, uh, 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 count from Sesame Street, because that is totally what he sounded like the whole time. Every single line he has is like the big reveal serial killer line. Everything he says is, there's the part where they talk about how, like, this battle in a war doesn't happen. And he goes, do not fear, my friend, your ability to kill each other will not, will, like, not be interrupted. <laughs> Who fucking... S who gets away with saying that in a conversation and everybody else just going, well, all right. Like, I feel like the, like... Hannibal Lecter, this guy is not. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't care how rich you are. If Jeff Bezos is at a party and is like, never fear your ability to smash each other to smithereens with cannons in meaningless displays will never be interrupted. I'll be just like, are you... Have you <laughs> Are you going to eat all of us? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I don't know with Jeff Bezos, because I'm not that familiar with him, but, like, if it were Peter Thiel, I would definitely think he was going to eat all of us. Well, it's more, I think, that in the the film, it's supposed to be that, like, his status gives him this protection, and everyone's like, oh, he's just eccentric. But, like, I don't care how much of an eccentric millionaire you are. If you fuck up and get offended on behalf of death three or four times, I'm gonna start looking for the hacksaw. Like, what the- Yeah, fair fair enough. (laughs) Like, it doesn't- it just doesn't make sense that everything he says is- I'm really not exaggerating. Everything he says is this double meaning like, ah, yes, I'll see them soon enough if they keep eating all that pork. (laughs) And it's like- there's no double meaning there, dude. You could only mean that you are death and you're waiting for them to die. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think, though, I want to give Frederick March some credit here because you said that you, you hated his performance. And I didn't like his performance either. I think he was doing exactly what he was directed to do. And he did disappear into this role. Like, this was not a Frederick March I have ever seen before. <laughs> I would agree with that. And and really, I don't think I got around to saying it. But what I was trying to say is, like, knowing that Frederick March is a good actor. And a charming one. Yes, I blame the script. And I think the script to this movie is just a fucking mess. I'm also going to put some blame on the director because I don't feel like that accent was really written into the scripts because all of the other people are supposed to be Italian and nobody has an Italian accent. Right. It's very strange. So yeah, on the like last night of him living as a human being, which, you know, I feel like if you've been taking people's lives for all of the existence of humanity, that you probably would have a lot more insight into the relationships that people have than this. Yeah. He's, yes. I compare him to, like, Death from the Sandman, who is the most insightful of all of the Endless, who likes people the most and gets them the most. And it's like, no. (laughs) What I end up comparing Death in this movie to is data in really badly written episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, where the gaps in his knowledge from being a robot just don't make any fucking sense. Where it's like, Sneak, what... What is this? Oh, subterfuge. Like, where it's just like, no, how do you know that? But not the other. What are you like? Right, right. Where where he has like, he does these big like speeches about the nature of man. And then it's like, T, a what? Where just like, (laughs) you, you can't. It can't be both of those. Like, you have to pick one. Either he has no sense of the day-to-day lives of people and therefore can't give these big speeches about the nature of man, or he's lived for literally tens of thousands of years. Well, hundreds of thousands. He's not just the death of man. He's just the abstract concept of death. So, like, billions of years. And, like, doesn't fucking... Yeah, so he has this incredibly deep perspective on mankind, but, like, he says directly he's doing this because he, like, doesn't get humans. He doesn't get why they're afraid of death. He, like, doesn't understand them, but then gives these big, long speeches about the nature of man. Like, well, I guess you at least think you've got it, my dude. Why'd you need to take this vacation? Whereas Death of the Endless totally understands why people are afraid of her and thus, like, goes out of her way to be 
not scary and not, I don't know, like, show up to people's random villa parties and say shit like, have you tried war? (laughs) I feel like even if this was a really good movie, like, Death from the Endless is the gold standard in personifications of death. I'm not asking for this to match up with that. I want it to match up with the personification of death from TV's Supernatural. And, like, it doesn't fucking meet that standard. (laughs) Like, it doesn't come close. Supernatural's death is way cooler, has a way clearer point of view, seems way more like what death would be like. And it's still creepy. (laughs) And it's still creepy. Yeah. That is what bugs me, is there's just no consistent point of view to death. It's It's only at the very end of the film that he, like, starts getting into this vaguely interesting thing of, like, being sort of infected by mortal desire from being a human, why don't I get to experience anything that is life, happens maybe 15 minutes before the end of the film. And like, that's compelling. Like if that was his whole arc, if from the moment he got there, it was about just like, I don't want to be death anymore, then that's something. But he's just all over the place. He's he's eight different characters depending on what lets him say some smarmy bullshit thing about the nature of man in any given scene. Most of the time, it doesn't even make any fucking sense. I did not like Meet Joe Black. I saw it in the theater. But at least in that movie with Brad Pitt as death, he, first of all, was like a regular dude and not a prince. He wasn't crashing somebody's vacation. And it was more about, like, the sensual parts of being a human that seemed to appeal to him. Like, oh, here's ice cream and sex and, like, things you could observe, but you couldn't actually, like, understand the experience unless you were in a body with nerves and, like, you know, a central nervous system. Which, like, that makes more sense. Not this, like, I want to know what it's like to be human, except I'm going to be a total fucking weirdo the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing that irritates me so much is, like, he's like, I want to know what it's like to be human. And then he becomes human and instantly has no interest in doing any human thing. Somebody has to suggest he do literally anything. He just wants to stand around and go, like, oh, yes, Now, death. What about death, everyone here at this party? Yeah, yeah. And, like, I... I I really, apparently, am very angry at this film. Apparently you are. So, after a few days, because he's decided he's going to do this for three days, or I decided? I mean, it's not... It's also not clear to me that, like, that he has any real control over this. Right. He, it seems because he can break it at any time that he's just decided to take this three day vacation, but that nothing is holding him to the three days that he could just quit being death at any time. And then death just stops. But like, he's decided he's going to do it for three days. Right. So there's a big ball and we have every single woman other than the old woman Stephanie, played by Helen Wesley. Every single young woman who has been in this movie so far has her own, like, hits-on-death scene. Which, again, is fine, but, like, say something with that. Like, make it so just people are uncontrollably attracted to death, which would actually be saying something kind of interesting about humanity through the actual storytelling of this movie, instead of having death just unilaterally declare things about humanity. 
if they were trying to make the point of like, oh, we're also afraid of death, but we're, we also all find him irresistible, that'd be something. But they all just seem to find him irresistible because that's the plot. There's no explanation for it at any point. Right. So Alda has this scene with him, and she's the token blonde, I guess, where they have this whole conversation, and then he basically, like, I guess turns her down, except that it seems less like he turns her down and more like he doesn't have any idea what's going on. And then she's like, well, fine, I guess if I'm not your type, and storms off, and he's like, type? What is type? (laughs) Then Princess Maria goes to hit on him. Wearing an absolutely stunning dress. It's all white and it's sort of a halter neck dress with the top of the back open, except it's covered in like incredibly long beaded fringe. It's wild. Yeah. You should Google it. But Princess Maria is like, oh yeah, I definitely could totally be with you. And he grabs her passionately and is like, could you, could you be with me? You have to really, really see me. And my first question was like, okay, I I guess Alda just wasn't his type because he definitely did not have this reaction to her. And then he like makes Princess Maria look into his eyes and then there's like a dolly zoom where I guess we're supposed to know that if you look deep enough into his eyes, you'll know that he's death. And then she like understandably freaks out. (laughs) He does this... This is an incredibly minor thing, but it bugged me so much that after he does that, he's still such a shit to the Duke for telling people. Like, you just told people. You just told someone. Like, five minutes ago. Yeah, basically. His motivation for all of this is something you have to build after the fact, because it's just a series of random actions until the last line of the film, which lets you go back and kind of justify his behavior, even though the last line of the film is garbage. He then, I guess, decides like, oh, no, love is not actually this real material thing that gives any meaning to life the way that the Baron was telling me it was. He was wrong. So, like, I guess I will now go talk to Grazia to tell her that? Well, first, he gets sort of attacked, I guess, by... Is it Corrado who's defending Maria? No, it's... Maria, like, has... Uh, uh, she has like a fiance or a husband or a yeah, who's like a somebody a completely separate guy who though looks remarkably like Corrado, but is not Corrado. And and the guy is like, you have to leave. I don't know who you are. I don't care if you are a prince. You have to get out of here. Don't you know when you're not wanted? And then the duke is like, no, 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 no. Don't say anything bad to him because of course, like. Depp said that if anybody treats him poorly, that he's going to take revenge on everyone, which he then doesn't do. Yeah, it's there's a couple of things that are really unclear to me about that. Like, one, I don't know where in the initial deal the Duke got the idea that, like, he could never have a conversation with Death or try and change his mind about anything. But for, like, the longest time in the last act... Everyone's like, we should go stop this person who's trying to take Grazia away to the land of the dead. And he's like, if, if I thought I could do anything, I'd do it. But I can't. I'm as good as dead. And it's like, well, who told you that? Like, no one told you that. You just decided that. Yeah, those those weren't the rules. So, yeah, then he goes and talks to Grazia and is like, yeah, love is not a real thing. And 
of course, Grazia, being the gothest of all goths, is like, it totally is, and definitely worth dying for, and I love you. They've Have they had a conversation before that in the film? No, not once. Okay, that's, I was not trying, once. I was like, did I zone out for their meaningful act two conversation that goes on for ten minutes? Nope. He waves hi to her in the garden once. That's their only interaction, I think, before this. Yep, yep. And then he does the whole, like, oh, but if you knew what I really was, you wouldn't say that. And she's like, no, I know, and I I do still love you, and I want to be with you. And then there's this, like, I guess climax of the movie where everybody finally figures it out, I think. Yeah, (laughs) and then tries to talk Grazia out of this objectively insane and terrible idea and she decides like no 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 i will go with death he like drops the guys and is in his weird shadow form again and she's like but you've always looked like that and i'm like hat why did she not mention the weird shadow man for the past three days (laughs) i did she mean that metaphorically because Then that just raises more questions. And they, like, disappear arm in arm as he, like, pronounces, like, so then there is a love that can conquer death. End of film. Which, on a weirdly upbeat musical note, really, like, the it's like triumphant music. And it's like, one, doesn't conquer death. Death won. (laughs) Death got her. Two... What does that mean? Three, why does he say it like that's what the whole film has been about? Because no one has brought this up before. Like, it doesn't... What? 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 Yeah, the first time it comes up is when he's talking to Maria. After he's already had another girl hit on him and he was like, I... What is flirting? It also, like, it isn't foreshadowed at all in the conversation about love with the Baron. Like, the Baron is like, love is what gives life meaning. And then at the end, he's like, well, there's love even beyond life in the land of the dead, just like everyone was saying. No one said that. No (laughs) one ever said that once. Uh, yeah, yeah, not even one time. And, oh, of course, Grazia says to Corrado before she leaves, she's like, you know, I love you so much. I could never tell you how much I love you. Really leave him hanging. But I love this guy more and I'm going to (laughs) die. Right. Honestly, at that point, just let him down hard. Like, if you've decided you're going to just walk into a weird spiritual afterlife, be bodily consumed into the land of the dead, the least you could do is go, I never loved you, to the guy who's going to have to get over it. <laughs> like, oh, do know that my love to you is a very deep connection, just not deep enough for me to not want to literally die instead of doing that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So why? Uh... Another fun fact, though, Kent Taylor, who plays Corrado, was apparently, along with Clark Gable, the inspiration for Superman's alter ego's name. Oh. That makes sense, because he's a real Clark Kent-looking motherfucker. Now that I'm like... He really is. He really is, yeah. And also had a very long career and starred, or, I don't know, starred acted in a lot of 
garbage movies <laughs> later in his career, including The Day Mars Invaded Earth, Satan's Sadists, Psycho Agogo. Oh shit, he was in I Spit on Your Corpse. I Spit on Your Corpse. Yeah, I was going to put that as the denouement because like, I mean, if you're going to be in a shitty movie. Yeah, be in a, uh, was I Spit on Your Corpse the one that like, no, I feel like it's too early. It's like the, it's the house at the end of the lane or whatever that like late seventies one was the one that Roger Ebert just, like, famously went in on. I think that's I Spit on Your Grave. Right, it is I Spit on Your Grave. Which is not, in fact, the the precursor to I Spit on Your Corpse. Or the sequel. It could go either way. Or the sequel, yeah, or the sequel. But I Spit on Your Corpse is a trauma film, you know, in case, in case you want to go seek that out. I misread the 1956 film Frontier Gambler as Phantom Gambler, and that would be a badass name for a movie. (laughs) Yeah. It would not be a particularly good movie. I would just like to see a movie called Phantom Gambler. Uh, yeah. Psycho Agogo, though, is definitely not a good movie. No. But it stars John Carradine, so... Which, in no way says whether or not a movie is good. Yeah, really, you you really <laughs> just said the same thing three times in a row. Yeah, the whole the whole Carradine family is like that. They're amazing actors who just apparently would take any job. I'm fine, by the way, with just talking about literally every film ever made but this one for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> um, because... Well, so, so Meet Joe Black is, have you seen it? I have not. I think it's one of those movies where I've seen like 20 minutes of it three times on HBO, you know? Right. And like, couldn't sit through the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Because I felt like having not seen this movie before, that Brad Pitt was horribly miscast. And I now actually think, oh, Brad Pitt was perfect casting. But just the concept of death in these films is just bad. They should just have an inherently different conception of death than the one they're going for in all of these. Well, first of all, you should never watch Meet Joe Black. Like, I just want to put that out there. There is no reason to see that movie. Literally, it is three hours long. It feels like it's a hundred hours long. And Brad Pitt actually is miscast in it because the way that death is played in Meet Joe Black is much more, like, Oh, wow. Everything is so new and amazing. Wide-eyed, naive, blinking child. Which, like, Brad Pitt is very handsome. He was incredibly handsome then. He never has played that role very well. He's always been a much better sort of tortured soul. Yeah, I'm kind of- I'm now imagining the Keanu Reeves meet Joe Black. Now, see, that is perfect casting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Perfect casting. It's also oh. the main thing about Meet Joe Black is how do you watch this film and go, you know what we need to fix? The title. That was the problem. The titles the title of this movie is fucking great. Death Takes a Holiday is an amazing title. Yeah, oh yeah. And why would you replace it with Meet Joe Black? I I, I don't know. It was the late nineties. But something that was really almost unsettling in Death Takes a Holiday for me was that Guy Standing sounds exactly like Anthony Hopkins does in Mijo Black. Exactly. And Anthony Hopkins sounds exactly like my dad in Meet Joe Black. 
and his daughter's name is Susan. <laughs> so, like, every time that he yells at her or they have, like, a really emotional scene and he says her name, it was incredibly upsetting to me. <laughs> and I felt even angrier about it because I was like, this movie sucks, and yet I'm having, like, a really deep emotional affect from it. <laughs> Claire Forlani, bless her heart, is just so, like, unmemorable and so much of a doormat in that movie. It's it's not great. I guess that the perceived age mismatch would make it weird, but having seen Grazia in this, I'm like, I, Christina Ricci. This is the er-90s Christina Ricci part. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, like, round, angelic face on a very sweet-looking girl who also happens to be super goth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Why would you build a remake of this in the 90s around Brad Pitt playing Death and not Christina Ricci playing Grazia? What's really frustrating is I feel like you could make a good version of this. That's what I'm saying. Is like, I feel like the reason people keep trying and coming back to it is like, the thing at the core of this just seems like such a compelling story, right? That death takes on mortal form and tries to understand what it is to be human and falls in love is like the fucking greatest elevator pitch of all time. Like, holy shit, am I ever in? What happens next? And it's like, eh, not much. He's, he's good at gambling. Couple women try and fuck him. Uh, then he just takes a woman to the land of the dead. The end. Uh, the... What? Oh, also, Death doesn't show up for the first entire act of the film. You're almost a fourth of the way through the movie before Death shows up. <laughs> uh, I <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's not amazing. It's not amazing, this movie. It is beautiful to look at. Someone should just take this movie and do an original score that takes all of the dialogue out and just, like, makes a very beautiful silent film. Oh, yeah, pretend like this is a silent film and dub in some new dialogue. It'd be great. Yeah, actually, that's brilliant. Somebody please do that. I feel like, I mean, the internet exists, so, like, surely someone has done that, right? Yes. Can I, can I, can I say a thing I've been, I've been wanting to say since, like, five minutes before we started recording when I discovered it, which is my favorite thing in the world right now is the unsourced last sentence of the Death Takes a Holiday Wikipedia page that just ends with, A May 2006 episode of the television drama Medium also builds on the concept of death portrayed as a man. The season two episode is similarly called Death Takes a Policy. Oh, Medium, the one television show that ever used this concept. I totally forgot that show even existed. I just love the idea of just someone going... You know the only place where they ever used this? Man, Medium was on for seven seasons. God, I would have thought more. Medium's not the one with Jennifer Love Hewitt, right? It's the one with, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Patricia Arquette. Yes. It's the Jennifer Love Hewitt one was on for like a long ass time, I feel like. Ghost Whisperer? Yes. <laughs> Which also I've never seen an episode of. I feel like knowing that Medium was on for seven seasons is like when I found out that the show Castle exists because my mom was telling me about it. 
and it had been on for like eight seasons already. <laughs> when I had that weird job in New York where I watched TV for product placement, I had a day where I just randomly picked ER thinking it was going to be a like old rerun of ER and I've never really watched much ER and I wonder what it'll be like. And I just realized it was like a new episode of ER in 2003 with John Stamos in it. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> like, I feel like I'm, I... <laughs> Wait, John Stamos was on ER? Like, what ca what casting director thought anyone would buy John Stamos as a doctor? John Stamos was on ER for like three seasons, I feel like. Maybe just, maybe just the last season, but I... Tony Gates is a fictional character on the television series ER. He is portrayed by John Stamos. Well, there you go. <laughs> Only the last two seasons of ER had John Stamos. But I knew it had to be more than one. The episode I ended up watching was a season finale where John Stamos was witness to a political assassination attempt and he was going to have to save them. The politician that just got shot. Yeah, see, I feel like my knowledge of ER is just that it ended after George Clooney left. Sort of in the way that, like, Angel doesn't have a fourth season. Yeah, it just skips straight to five. It's really weird. It's it's really weird. And how, like, people who really like The West Wing always say that it ends after, like, is it season one or two? I've never actually watched The West Wing. One, you should watch The West Wing. Uh, and shout out to a podcast that doesn't know we exist at all, West Wing Weekly, uh, which is a great rewatch podcast. Joshua Molina, who you've seen in a lot of stuff and is delightful, and the host of Song Exploder rewatch an episode of West Wing every week. And it's a good way to like, if you've never watched it before, I think like get insights into it as you watch it. And it's the first four seasons before they kicked out Aaron Sorkin, at which point the series ends, even though there's, I think, four more seasons after that. I didn't even realize there were eight. I thought there was just like... The fifth season was the one, I guess. You know what? There's only seven, and this really annoys me because The West Wing went on real time, except somewhere in there they skipped a year, and I could never fucking figure out when or why. It was two years off from real time, so their presidential elections took place during our midterms and vice versa. And then just for some reason, the last season of the show was like, there's a presidential election, even though it's 2007. Weird. <laughs> Yeah, so... Should we should we rate this film? This is an honest question from me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we should rate this film. So here's the problem with having chosen this movie in this year, is that there's a handful of really good movies in this year, but there's a lot of really shitty movies in this year that this movie is definitely better than. I mean, yes, I will say this movie has no blackface. It's not One Night of Love. It's not House of Rothschild. It's better than a lot of the movies in this year i want to give it a three and a half okay i don't want to give it a four but i do feel like it's better than just a straight three like i feel like we gave a straight three to like the house of rothschild yeah i, mm, I so i feel really really torn because i think that the movie is so beautiful to look at i want to give it a six because i feel like as the long as you turn the sound off this movie is wonderful i oh <laughs> no we can't do like we can't do that we can't do that. We could disagree. No, we can't. No, I mean, we can't. You can't have more than half of the score be just the visuals. I mean, it is film. Right. But like film is a visual storytelling medium and the story is fucking garbage and the dialogue is garbage and the acting I do think is the director's fault, but does not really connect with the audience very well. <laughs> and so like 
yeah, like best set design, absolutely. But like best set design does not get you six points out of a 10 point scale. Yeah, but the costumes are really good. The cinematography is good. The special effects are good. I, mm, I, I, I think I think everybody who is in it, even though their characters are all dipshits, like the actors are so good that they're really giving it their all in some dipshit roles. I, uh, I guess I like I think for the time, the special effects are fine. I don't think the cinematography is anything special. Like, I don't I don't know a shot that isn't just point the camera at the really good sets. That's fair. It's really more that the art direction is phenomenal. So, like, it would be hard to fuck up the cinematography in this. That's fair. And I really do think, like, the art direction is very good. I just would, like, go, like, f- four because of that. Like, I, I can't. I can't imagine giving this the same grade that we gave even Cleopatra. I feel like we didn't give a six to. Oh, well, if we didn't give Cleopatra a six, then I'm not going to give this a six because Cleopatra was really enjoyable. Yeah. Like, I feel like we... All right, I'll give it a four. I'll give it a four. Surely we gave Cleopatra higher than a four. I can't remember if we gave Cleopatra a five or a seven. I think we gave it a seven. I think we gave it a seven because we had the same, like, split argument about the art direction is really good, but also the cinematography is really good also there are just weird leopard women yeah but the thing is like cleopatra's dialogue was garbage but the story was compelling like i absolutely was bored very rarely in cleopatra where i was like frequently bored in this movie oh yeah i zoned out a lot in this until there was a new set and i would be like oh yay what do the chairs look like in this room i think i just zoned in on like the set and costumes and the furniture and like whatever to a point where i wasn't paying attention to what anyone was saying anymore because everything everyone said was garbage So my experience of it was just that it was a very pretty thing to watch, and the rest of it was like, who gives a shit? But yeah, I'll go, I'll give it a four. You can stick to three and a half, but I'm going to give it a four. I, I'll give it a four just because we legally can't disagree. That's that's the deal we made with Death, so that he would only stay for three days. Is we can only we can never disagree about the score of any film. But we but we have. Don't tell Death that, Susan. How many times? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I mean, we have always agreed. Please don't listen to our podcast, (laughs) Death. No, I'm just kidding. We love all our listeners, especially Death. (laughs) So should you watch this movie? No? No. No. No, No, you shouldn't. No. (laughs) I wish I... I think if you're having a Halloween party and you want to, like, put it on the television with the sound off while you have a really good playlist going, it is totally good for that. But only for that. But so is Black Cat. You should do a double feature. (laughs) Though I will say, as a fun fact, if you had a big Brad Pitt crush and therefore have a DVD copy of Meet Joe Black, you do in fact have this on DVD to play at a party. So in that case, you should play this at a party. So you don't have to track it down or buy it on Amazon or anything. Oh yeah, you should definitely, definitely not purchase this movie or even pay to rent it for that purpose. It is not, it's not spooky enough. Black Cat, on the other hand, definitely lots of spooky images. A worse movie, though. I was desperately trying to come up with a transition to next week's film, and it's this weird middle ground where it actually works too well with Skinned Alive to go to Imitation of Life. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the... 
But it's our last Claudette Colbert movie of uh, 34. And who will win in the Battle of Claudette Colbert? <laughs> God, who is our front runner right now for Claudette Colbert's? Oh, it happened one night. Oh, yeah. I, how do I keep forgetting she's in that? Like, I keep remembering them in reverse. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, the Barrett's of Wimple Street wasn't that great. But also the, the... Oh, right. She's in the incredibly good movie from this year. Not just like that movie is in the lead, which I'm still going to say, like, is the best movie we've seen so far this year. But I feel like Claudette Colbert's performance in that movie is the winning Claudette Colbert performance. Oh, yeah. But we'll find out next week if maybe if she, you know, defeats herself. Though I also am, I'm going to be curious to see going forward. She's in four movies this year. Three. Only three. Wasn't she in? No, I guess she wasn't in House of Rothschild. I thought she was. I think it's just because it's also a terribly overwrought title. She was only in It Happened One Night and Cleopatra and coming next week, Invitation of Life. Oh, yeah. So until then, stay safe trick-or-treating. Uh, Hopefully no one who listens to this podcast is young enough to trick-or-treat. <laughs> yes. Given that I told Death to fuck off about 87 times in this podcast... <laughs> I apologize to our younger listeners. <laughs> and don't take any unwrapped candy because it might have razor blades in it. Though also, if you want to get your mom and dad to like and subscribe to us on iTunes <laughs> or write a review, uh, we would really appreciate it because that will help us accidentally get more young and impressionable children hooked on uh, our show. And until then, this... This was a movie. This was a movie. It should have been a different movie. I feel like that's the trap, though. I feel like it's just a quicksand pit where just there you can't actually make this a good movie. But people are going to try forever because you should be able to. You really should. And this was just a movie. It was just a movie. Goodbye, everyone, and happy Halloween. Bye.